now let's go over and say hello to Professor Bart Ehrman. He is uh, chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is the authority on the history of the New Testament, the early church, and the life of Jesus. Nice to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. I read a new book called Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. And I appreciate you being on to discuss some of these issues. And I'd like to start with a um, a more profound overlook, if you would, and then uh, take all the time you want to address this, all right? Okay. Frequently we are told by people who, individuals within different religions, that their particular dogmas um, that they uh, subscribe to justify the actions or how they're interpreting what God has said. And it is one of the reasons when I spoke with to some with several of the Islamic scholars, when I said, is Islam a peaceful religion? They said yes. And when I said, is Islam a, a can it be a fanatical or violent religion? They also said yes. And it depends upon which parts of their sacred text you choose to read and how you choose, choose to interpret them. Similar to the Old Testament. I went through the Old Testament. I took out over 100 statements that have taken verbatim in a person who was told these are the Word of God and you're, the Word of God, the laws of God, supersede human laws and those who are very extreme in their beliefs, uh, you would have to then subscribe to such things as slavery and the uh, uh, rape and, and the mutilation of bodies and desecration of uh, people mass murder, and in fact, I added up all the people who had been killed in the Old Testament just as for my own curiosity. On the other hand, uh, if you say, is the Bible uh, the Word of Lord, uh, the God, most people say yes, all of it, yes, and then you have this New Testament, Old Testament division. Now, it does not mean, and I'm not inferring or implying that people who believe that the Bible is the absolute Word of God and is irrefutable that they're going to commit any act of violence by holding on to some passage, but those who have fought uh, against other people or tried to justify the actions of other people frequently will cite some verse, and they're very selective in it. Then we get, so, so I want you to give me your thoughts on that, uh, the idea of how we can have individuals interpret something as being written by God when we have no proof, or what is the proof, if you choose to show me the proof of that. And then we get to the New Testament, and it seems that in the New Testament, there is a, a softer, more empathetic, um, um, a, more, a more ethical approach to how we deal with issues. And then once again, how do we know who wrote the Bible? What proof do we have? And if this was written in the New Testament by individuals at different times in history, how do we know they weren't influenced by the politics, their own egos, their own fears, their own ideologies or some other ones that they agreed to and how those were selected to go into a Bible and which ones were left out and why were things left out and why were things put in. I think these are responsible questions that are not being addressed, and I would hope that you would take your time and your expertise and address these now. <laughs> oh, so how many hours do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, um, well, let me, let me tell you... Uh, my views that uh, that I started with when I started uh, studying the Bible, and then the views I came to uh, over time as I studied more, and uh, uh, in fact uh, related to my book, misquoting Jesus, where I deal with deal with some of these uh, some of these issues. When, when I began uh, 
being interested in the Bible, I actually had had a born-again experience in high school and considered myself to be a born-again evangelical Christian. I went off to Moody Bible Institute and uh, did a degree at Moody, Moody, which is a fundamentalist Bible school. And then I went to Wheaton College, which is the alma mater of Billy Graham. And uh, during this time, I was convinced the very words of the Bible were inspired by God and that they had no mistakes in them. Um, as I studied uh, more and more, though, I, I, uh, there were a couple problems that, that arose. Um, one problem that arose is uh, I began over time to see that there were uh, discrepancies in the Bible, uh, discrepancies between what different authors of the Bible have to say. Uh, some of these are very small and picayune uh, differences between, uh, say, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. Some of them are very large differences in how each of the biblical authors, for example, portrays Jesus. The way he's portrayed in the Gospel of John is very different from the way he's portrayed in the Gospel of Mark, for example. Uh, and some of them are uh, e uh, even larger differences in, in views of, of who God is. Um, and you point out, for example, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, although I would, I would argue that even in the New Testament there are different portrayals of God, because the kind of, the kind of gentle, well-meaning God who's kindly towards his people uh, is true for a lot of the New Testament, but it certainly is not true for the book of Revelation, which is filled with every bit as much wrath and anger and judgment as, as any passage in the, in the Old Testament. And so I think what you have is a situation where different authors have different views about God, about Christ, about salvation, and so forth, and only at a later time were these various views put together into one book, the Bible. Originally, the Bible, uh, the books of the Bible were written separately by different authors in different times for different reasons to different audiences, and they have different points of view. And so the historical way of reading the Bible is by setting it in each of these books in their own historical contexts, rather than uh, pretending that they all have the same context, and rather than pretending that their, their context is our context. Uh, the Bible wasn't written in 21st century America. It was written 2,000 years ago in, a, in different countries, and you have to understand it in its own context, or you take it out of context. So that was the first thing I realized. The second thing I realized is what's related to my book, Misquoting Jesus, which is uh, I, in which I deal specifically with the New Testament, and I deal with a, a very fundamental problem that got in the way of my belief in the Bible as the inerrant Word of God. I had believed that all the words of the Bible were completely inspired, but I came to realize as I studied that we don't have the originals of any of the books of the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament books were authored in the first century, but we don't have the books that these people, the authors actually wrote. What we have are copies of these books, and the copies we have are not very uh, close to the originals. These are copies, for the most part, that were made centuries after the originals. We have over 5,000 copies of the New Testament in the Greek language in which they were originally written. And the striking thing is that among these over 5,000 copies, no two of them are exactly alike in their wording. The reason they're not alike is because scribes who copied these texts changed the text, uh, sometimes in insignificant ways, lots of, lots of, uh, thousands and thousands of incidental in, immaterial changes, but sometimes they change the text for, for in significant ways, ways that actually change the meaning of what the text is. 
this creates a huge problem for uh, for people reading the Bible who think that the Bible contains the words of God, because there are places where scholars debate what the original words were in one passage or another, and there are some passages where we don't know what the original words were. Uh, well, that obviously throws a monkey wrench into the idea that these words are inspired by God, because there are places where we don't have the words anymore. Do we have... Uh, what about such things as the Council of Nicaea, where many people were gathered under official edict to determine what would be a Bible, and many of the scholars of the time brought books or advocated certain chapters, and they were excluded? Now, how do we know that what was excluded was any less germane or authentic in its construction than what was included, and was that not in itself a political process as much as anything, and therefore someone including something in the, the Bible and someone excluding something in the Bible and doing so uh, in a, in, in a I, I, we could only imagine something of a contentious environment, especially since after that there was a great effort to purge anything that was not included so people would get the idea that only this Bible represents the truth, and nothing else shall challenge it or be a part of it. Shouldn't we look at that also as a part of understanding the significance of the process that the Bible went through to be constructed? Well, I, I, yeah, I think in general terms you're absolutely right. Um, it, the, uh, and I'll say something about that in a minute. The, the, the specifics, though, are a bit of a problem, because there is this wide, widespread belief that the Council of Nicaea is where uh, these, uh, these church leaders decided which books would be in the Bible. And uh, that's, that's certainly a part of the popular culture today. That's, that's what a lot of people think. But actually, it didn't work that way. Um, the Council of Nicaea actually didn't talk about which books belonged in the, in the Bible. The Council of Nicaea was called for completely different reason, which was to decide uh, in what sense is Jesus the Son of God. Uh, there, there, were, um, there were two major views floating around in Christianity at the time. Uh, one view was that Jesus was, was a divine being, but he was a creation of God the Father, that at some point in the etern in eternity past, God the Father created God the Son, and then God the Son created the universe, and then eventually became a human being in the universe. But in this point of view, Christ is a secondary divinity who's subordinate to God the Father, and there was a time before which Christ didn't exist. That was one point of view. The other point of view was that uh, Christ always existed, that he was always with God, and he's not just uh, a secondary divinity subordinate to God the Father, that he's an eternal divinity who's equal with God the Father, and in fact is of the same substance of God the Father. That's, that was the second point of view, and the Council of Nicaea was called in order to decide which of these points of views was, was correct. Uh, and the Council voted, and it was the second point of view that ended up winning out, and that, that became the basis then for the creeds that uh, are still confessed in Christian churches uh, today. The Council of Nicaea did not take up the question, though, of which books belong in the Bible. This wasn't part of their, uh, their agenda. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the Council of Nicaea was called in the year 325. It was, uh, it was another 40 years uh, before anybody that we know of listed our books of the New Testament and said, these are the books that belong in the New Testament, and, and list just our 27 books. This was a famous bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, named Athanasius, who in 367 wrote a letter to his churches and listed our, our books of the New Testament. 
But even though Athanasius thought those were the books that should belong in the New Testament, there were other people who disagreed, and the debates went on for decades after that. But this means that for 300 years there were debates about which books belonged in the Bible, in the New Testament. Uh, some people thought that uh, the Apocalypse of John should be in the New Testament, and other people thought it should not be in. Some people thought that the Apocalypse of Peter should be in, uh, and other people thought that it should be out. Uh, as you know, the Apocalypse of Peter did not make it, but the Apocalypse of John did. Uh, some people thought that the Shepherd of Hermits should be in. Well, it got left out. Or the, the Letter of Barnabas should be in, but it got left out. There were, there were enormous debates that went on for, for centuries about which books to include. And some of the debates were over books that are now were eventually deemed heretical. For example, we know we know of dozens of other Gospels that's, that different groups thought were uh, authoritative Christian scripture. So we have a Gospel of Peter, for example, a Gospel of Thomas, a Gospel of Philip, a Gospel now of Judas Iscariot. There were different Christian groups who all thought that these Gospels should belong in the scriptures. and uh, But these groups lost the debates. Uh, and so, as a result, their books were left out of consideration, and so we end up with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we don't end up with Philip, Thomas, Mary, and Judas. Why do you believe that we should hold a historical accuracy to what is stated in these books when we cannot attribute specific books to uh, specific authors and the authenticity of those authors and we only have what their interpretation is. And, and why should we not then allow ourselves to have our own interpretation of what they meant rather than holding that these are irrefutable interpretations? Well, um, you know, I, I think it's important to understand what these books are, especially the Gospels of the New Testament. They, um, we call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the books themselves don't claim to be written by people named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are later ascriptions of the book uh, by later editors. Uh, the books themselves are actually anonymous. Uh, their authors don't tell us who they were. The one thing we know about these authors is that they were highly literate, uh, well-trained authors who wrote in Greek. Uh, the thing we know about Jesus' own followers is that they were lower-class peasants uh, from Galilee who spoke Aramaic, a different language. There's nothing to suggest that any of Jesus' followers were from the upper classes, the class that knew how to read and write, let alone read and write in Greek. And so probably we're dealing with authors who are not among Jesus' closest followers. In fact, they weren't among his followers at all. These are people who didn't even live in Palestine, Jesus' homeland. Most scholars think the Gospels were written 30 to 50 or 60 years after Jesus had died. And so what we have are instances in which we have books written by people who weren't there to see these things happen, who have heard stories about Jesus and are recording the stories that they've heard. Now, having said that, um, they're still valuable historical sources, uh, because they're as close as we can get to the historical Jesus, and we, I think we have to treat these these Gospels the way we would treat any other historical source from the period, just as we treat uh, discussions of um, Alexander the Great from near his time, or, uh, or uh, Socrates from near his time, or Julius Caesar from near his time. We treat these Gospels the way we would treat other historical sources. I don't think that we can accept everything that they say as being inerrant and without 
without problems because they, they in fact have discrepancies among them. On the other hand, they do contain historically valuable information. And so the trick that scholars have, or the, the duty that scholars have, is to decide what in these, what in these books is historically accurate and what in these books, in fact, is, uh, are things that have been modified over the, you know, over the process of retelling in the years. I would agree with that, and I think that is a, a balanced thought you just gave on this whole topic. I would say, however, that in the case of Alexander the Great and Socrates, as just two examples, there were scribes at the time who were very literate and sometimes would take down every word. And the Romans, in the case of the Caesars, had court, in effect, stenographers. What they chose to write may not have been accurate based upon how someone wanted to portray themselves, but they give us a glimpse into that. No point in history is ever accurate. If you, I just watched the play uh, the other night, uh, the Frost-Nixon debates about David Frost and President Nixon after he had left office. And, and even there, we had a chance to see from a narration on stage what was actually going through the minds of each person, and neither of that is what came across on television. So even people in our current time, when we're alive and have witnessed things, do not always get the accurate uh, portrayal of things. So going back 2,000 years, and the first people really writing, and, and we don't have any knowledge of the people who wrote even early after Christ's death, not necessarily early, back then it's not like today. Today, everything is instantaneous. If you have one event happen, you'll have multiple people covering it. doesn't mean that those people are accurate. In fact, if I gave a lecture, which I just did, and there were 100 people at the lecture, and I came out and I said, now, what did I just say? I'm going to have 100 different people telling me what I, I said. So imagine that someone 60 years after someone said something, someone is trying to guess what was said based upon what was spoken over years and how many times it got reinterpreted. So I'm thinking, why don't we simply accept that we have a right to interpret for ourselves the best meaning, and in that context, the most spiritual meaning. Because what is the purpose of the whole Bible except as a, a guideline for how to live a moral and ethical existence, to, to, well, to live at a higher, say, higher standard than what otherwise What I would say not. is that the most spiritual meaning may not be the most historically accurate meaning. Well, I'd agree with that. <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, as a historian, I'm interested in knowing, for example, what Jesus actually taught. And I don't think it's just a matter of personal interpretation. I think that there are methods that historians can use to reconstruct what happened in the past, whether we're talking about Jesus or Socrates or, or Julius Caesar. Um, and they're comparable situations, because with, with Socrates, for example, we have different uh, different authors who talk about him. Plato does, and so does Athenagoras. Uh, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not Athenagoras, but uh, Aristophanes. And uh, you, and their portrayals are different. And so one needs to, just like the Gospels are different when they describe Jesus. And so historians have to develop methods for dealing with this kind of source, which you're exactly right. They're not written by eyewitnesses, uh, and they, they're, they're at odds with each other. And so how do you go about reconstructing what the historical facts are? Well, there are ways to do it. I mean, it's complicated, but it can be done. But that's, that's why historians spend their lives studying these topics. Even with the best historians, there's still going to have to be, at some point in your journey, a quantum leaf of faith, trying to tie two ends of a string together, and you become the bridge between them, your strength of belief and how you choose to interpret those events, since we have no absolute hard proof of what Jesus actually said or what he actually did that is not in any way to demean any of this, 
It's merely a matter that at some point, I believe that we have to look at what, what constitutes the higher principle of what a person represents. No different than Martin Luther King, no different than Gandhi or Maimonides or Spinoza or any of the others throughout history. Should we not look at what their higher ideal is and try to live by a higher ideal? Well, we don't know what their higher ideal is if we don't know what their words were. And so with Martin Luther King Jr., it's easy because we have, we have uh, solid documentation about what he said. Uh, with Jesus, it's much harder because uh, we're dealing with sources that are decades later by people who didn't know him. Uh, and so, I mean, I, in, in essence, I agree with you, but I, I think that there are ways to figure out what Jesus actually said. Uh, and there, you know, I mean, I've written a book about this, about how, how one goes about deciding what Jesus actually said. And uh, it, it is a matter of, of uh, enormous debate among scholars. There, there's, there is no unanimity among people who spend their lives studying the question. Well, there can't be, because there's none of you who were alive when he was alive. And we well, don't, even if we were, as you point out, if you have different eyewitnesses, they're going to say different things. And also, people will be biased based upon their educational status, their closeness to Jesus, and in, in their views and beliefs as compared to what his were. In any case, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insights. Hopefully, people will read Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why it is an educational journey we all should take to, edu- to enlighten ourselves. Thank you oh, very thank much. You. Thank you. And that was Professor Bart Ehrman, chairman of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina.